0: Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. spending uh, the month of December not just talking about Christmas, but trying to uh, approach an alternative approach, I would say, to to Christmas called the Advent-Driven Life. Last week, we began our series where what we're trying to do is we want to show the world that there is more to this holiday season than just the pursuit of more and more things, which, as we kind of talked about last week, leaves us oftentimes feeling like we need more and more stuff, that whatever we acquire is never quite enough. So this December... We're choosing what we're calling the Advent-driven life, and what we're doing is exploring four different portraits from the Bible of individuals who were waiting for the Savior to come, and we're kind of exploring what is it that we can learn from them about the birth of Jesus and then learning how we can live those principles out during this Advent Christmas season and beyond. Well, last week we talked about waiting for God. One of the most important aspects of Advent is the concept of waiting, right? Waiting for a Savior. And we explored two separate individuals. One was a man named Simeon. We learned about Simeon and we discovered that waiting patiently for God brings the greatest reward of God's power and presence in our life. If we want him to act on our behalf, we wait for him and we can see that he'll show up in our finances, in our relationships, in our work situation, in our home life, that, that it's better to wait for God to do his thing than to try to do it on our own. We learned that from Simeon. The next story was with Anna. We learned from Anna that waiting for God oftentimes signals a preparation in our life so that we can be ready to be used by God for His purposes, ultimately to reach other people in our lives, oftentimes, kind of as I just said in our giving moment that it 's not just for us, the good things that God does for us is wonderful, but He also wants to partner with us to reach other people to have the same and So we learned from Anna that waiting for God often signals preparation and we talked a lot about waiting and how it can be difficult, and the big idea of last week was this: it was that waiting. Only really has meaning if we're waiting for the right thing. We can wait for a lot of things in life, but they'll oftentimes leave us feeling empty and dry and searching for more. But waiting on God is so, so worth it. Well, this week we're going to continue with another aspect of Advent, which is called seeking. For God, seeking God. So there's the idea of waiting, which in some ways is passive, right? There's a, it's a, okay, I'm just going to sit here and expectantly wait. Well, now this week we're going to talk about another aspect, which is seeking God. Um, just a few weeks ago, I lost my wallet. I was at uh, a friend's house, one of our uh, individuals here in our church. We have a Monday night football group, a bunch of guys and some ladies get together and we go to different people's houses on Monday night and we watch football games. That's the body of Christ in action right there, okay? Sitting down as, a, as a brothers and sisters and just watching football and having a good time together. Um, so one night I went to to their house and and went home, and the next morning discovered that I couldn't find my wallet anywhere. And so what did I do? Immediately, I stopped all of the plans that I had for that particular day and took a few hours searching for it. I went back to their house. I texted them and called them and asked if I could get into the house. And look, I searched underneath the couch cushions. I mean, I was putting my hands in some, you know, dirty spots underneath those couches. You know what I'm talking about with couches, right? No offense to you guys whose house it was. But, um, and I went up into the bathroom. I tried to retrace every step that I could find and didn't find them in the house. And then I I went outside and thought, well, maybe it fell out of my pocket as I was getting out of the car, and it's a rainy day, so I'm down in Millvale, and I'm, I'm kind of crouching down and like trying not to get wet. I'm looking underneath cars. I mean, there's puddles everywhere. I'm looking down in sewer holes. Like I'm trying to find my wallet because it has important things in it, right? I mean, it's got my check card and my license and all sorts of things. It has my Dunkin' Donuts card in it, guys, like the serious, serious things, and so I searched and searched and searched for it and didn't find it, actually, kind of interestingly enough. So I ended up c- canceling all my cards and I had to order a brand new license. And wouldn't you know the very next day it was in my pants drawer? I, yeah. So, but that's, but that's the point is that I, I went and searched for it. Sometimes, however, though, in my life, there are things that I don't search for. Sometimes I'm interested in things and I think, oh, that's intriguing or that's interesting or maybe hear something on TV or there's a product like in a commercial or something that I think is interesting. But then I don't really go after it. Like my wallet, it was so clear. I've got to stop everything. This is important. I need to go find it. Other things in my life... I'm interested in them, but I don't really put the attention or the effort into it and just kind of leave it be. And that's another aspect of, of searching. I mean, I love to learn new things, but many times I just have not put the effort into finding out more about it. I think, have you ever lost something and that you dropped everything? for it? Have, have any of you ever lost your wallet? Or maybe that there was something important that you needed to search for and you went after it? Did you turn your house upside down to search for that thing? In fact, in scripture, we see oftentimes that, that, uh, that, that the kingdom of God is about that concept. Uh, Jesus multiple times said that the, that the concept of the kingdom is like a pearl or a treasure and it's, being, it's worth seeking after. But sometimes... I think also times in Christmas we see that, right? People are scouring stores for, for the, the hot item of the year. I remember when I was a kid, it was Tickle Me Elmo, right? <laughs> Tickle Me Elmo was the thing that everybody wanted to do. They would go to Toys R Us and they would go to Walmart and they would go to Target and they would search whatever the stores were at the time for. I don't know what the big issue is or the big item is this year, but there's this idea during the Christmas season that there is something out there that we've got to get and we will go and we will find it. But maybe there were times where you didn't Perhaps there was something in your life that you felt like um, you lost something, but it was just like, it's not that important to me, and you kind of let it go, and you didn't really search for it. That the thing, you know, wasn't a big deal, maybe like a remote. There have been a time like, I just, I'm just, I can't find the remote. It's not a big deal. I'll just get a new one or something like that, right? So there's these two ideas of a seeking concept. One, where things are so important, where it's something that it requires me to drop everything, and it's a priority in my life, and other things that are that, that I lost something or I need to find something, but for whatever reason, we just don't give it enough merit. One puts the emphasis on importance of something and the other doesn't. And in Advent, we are confronted with the same dilemma, the concept of, of waiting and seeking for God. We are faced with that same dilemma, and that's this. To seek God with priority in our lives, we're only in passing. That's the dilemma that we are faced with during this Advent season is how are we seeking God? Are we seeking him intentionally with priority? or is the concept of seeking out a savior or god in our life is that a is that a passing thing or something without much merit. Well, let's explore a famous passage of scripture today to see what we might learn about the concept of seeking. Would you open your bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 2. If anybody has a Bible, can you hold it up in the air? Is there proof of anyone existing with one? All right, we've got an actual Bible in the room. Two of them. How about that? So, so here, here, let me just tell you something real quick. We have Bibles down here for you. If you need a Bible... We have them here, and we have them in the Connection Center. Please, please, please take them. They are free, okay? The second thing is, if you have a smartphone or a tablet, please uh, get the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app. I think just 212 million people, I think, downloaded them. I just saw this week. It's incredible. It's the easiest access to the Bible that you will ever have. So if you have that, please turn it to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 today, and this is what it says. This is a very famous passage. We're going to learn about seeking God. It says this Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of a king named Herod. About that time, some wise men or magi from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everybody in Jerusalem because it's going to be shaking things up, right? A new king. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So this guy knew that there was a prophecy of a, of a coming king. And so he called all the smart guys into the room and said, where is this Messiah, this chosen one supposed to be born? And they said in Bethlehem in Judea, it's like a city in a state. Okay. And they said, "'For this is what the prophet wrote.'" And then they referenced this Old Testament prophetic uh, writing here. And it says, "'And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel.'" Verse 7 says, "'Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared.'" Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went on their way and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So what we see in this story, in this passage of Scripture here, in this very famous passage, which many of us on our mantles, on our house or in our apartments have these nativity scenes, and oftentimes there are the wise men there bowing down, and they have gifts, right? It's a very, very popular, very famous passage of Scripture. But in this Scripture, we see two different people who are seeking after Jesus in a very different way. The first is the Magi and the star. This is This is very interesting because I think... Some people, maybe even in the room, are like, I don't even know if these guys really existed because it seems like there's a lot of strange things that have happened inside of this that, that in this story that I'm not sure if, it's, if, I, if I know that it's real. So the Bible tells us that they call them magi. The word magi is sort of a word we get the word magician from. In the culture of the time, magi literally meant like astrologer, okay? These guys, what they would do, it wasn't so much arts like magic, like pulling a rabbit out of a hat or or like turning things invisible or things like that. We're talking the concept of the magi was this idea of uh, of priests or kind of high-ranking individuals who studied after the stars and looked at the patterns in the sky. They were very much... They believed that what they saw in the sky and the way that the star patterns moved told them about important events that were happening. Uh, they were perhaps priests as well. Some of the religious areas uh, or in the countries where they came from, they would have been considered priests, like of their religions. And the Bible tells us that they were from the east. Now, we have a map on, on the screen here of where they were probably from, either from an area called Persia an area called Arabia or an area called Mesopotamia, which ultimately is either Persia is where Iran is, Arabia, is Saudi Arabia, or they're from like the Iraqi area. So Israel is literally right between the words Egypt and Arabia. Okay, that's where Israel is. And so it says a star rose in the east. So they were over here in the east and they saw the star rising in on that side where it was heading towards there. So they were from this area is where we know that they were from. They were experts in interpreting dreams and looking into the sky to see what exactly the star patterns would mean. Verse 2 actually says that they saw his star rising and that they have come to worship him. So we see right off the bat that these guys were searching for something and they wanted to worship who they felt like was important. Now this star itself has caused some controversy. The concept of the star, a lot of people, particularly individuals who are looking for empirical evidence for things, have said there is really no evidence of a brand new star that arose out of anywhere. We know that it just doesn't happen, that, that a star just sort of pops up. And some people explain it with a miracle. They would say, well, well, you know, God is the God who created the universe, so he could certainly just make something appear in any given moment. And that's true. I mean, it is true. God can do that. Other times, we see that it says that the star sort of moved. Some people think it was a comet. Some people think that the star in the sky was a comet that was kind of going along. But there's actually a really, really interesting theory which I kind of ascribe to when I'm looking for some sort of scientific evidence of what this star might have been. And and there's a a man, a famous astronomer by the name of Kepler. And he says that around that time that Jesus was born, there is scientific evidence that the, the constellation of Pisces actually had in its formation The planets of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars showing up within the constellation. I think we have on our next slide here. So, this is what the constellation of Pisces looks like. It's sort of this V here, it kind of looks like Pittsburgh, actually. And, And you can see in the middle, Saturn, Mars, and Jupiter. Now, what he is saying is that during this time, the men from Persia or Arabia from that area would have looked up and would have seen this constellation, but seen these additional planets in the constellation cluster and would have said, whoa, this is completely different than what it normally looks like. You you following me here? I know this is kind of like a sort of a teaching seminar thing here, but here's why it's important. These wise men would have seen the unique star formation. That's not normally there. It only happens every so often. And they would have carefully studied the patterns in the sky and recognized that this is different. Now, why is it important? It's because throughout ancient Near East, the births of extraordinary savior-type figures were often believed to be accompanied or thought to coincide with astral phenomenon. So for them, for these men in their religions, it was a part of their faith that when they saw this kind of astral phenomenon that to them it signaled the birth of an important savior-like figure. In fact, it happened similarly with Alexander the Great. So these men from another country who are not Jewish people, who are not from their country, who don't have the expectations of Messiah, see this star in the sky hovering over the Israeli area, and they said, there is something important happening. We have to go. You understand this is important this is crazy how this happened and so their expectation according to a man named josephus who was a historical writer there was an expectation in the near east that a world sovereign was going to be born out of israel so you put those two pieces of information in the east area where these guys were from there was already a, a prophecy or an expectation for some reason we're not sure why that there was going to be a world leader coming from the israel area And then these men are looking in the sky, and they see this constellation in the sky, which they see as like a a new star, right? And they see it, and they follow it, and it leads them to Jerusalem. So naturally, after seeing this star formation, they travel to the palace in Jerusalem, because where else are you going to go if you're going to find a king, right? You're going to go to see the baby in a king's palace, expecting to find the newborn heir to the king. I think it's pretty incredible, actually, that God uses the methods of science and of humanity to teach and introduce himself to the world. In fact, particularly to the Gentiles who didn't have the customs or the expectations of the Jewish people. I think that's incredible already in this birth story of Jesus that he announces his arrival to the earth through people, through man-made techniques and introduces himself to a people who were not even expecting him. I think it's incredible. So that's what we learned about the, about the Magi and how they were seeking. They were seeking for something. But there's this man named Herod, King Herod. As king, Herod was both brutal brutal And he was decisive, he was punishing or executing his enemies and rewarding his friends. He was also aging, and near the end of his life, he was born in 47 BC and lived until 4 BC. He was constantly fighting off members of his family who were trying to steal his throne, and he eventually became paranoid and became suspicious of those who would try to take his throne from him. By the time we meet this man named Herod in Matthew chapter 2, he had actually contracted an incurable disease. So if you can picture this man, when the wise men come and they say, hey, we're excited. We saw this star in the sky, and we're here to see this newborn king, who they're expecting was his son, right? You know? And all of a sudden, what we see is this man who is frail and who's paranoid and who is in the back of his head thinking... I don't know what you're talking about, but now I have to find out who's trying to steal the power that I have, right? That's what was happening here with Herod. When the Magi came to Jerusalem asking, asking about this baby Jesus, seeking him out, Herod called together all of the theological leaders of the Jewish people to find out exactly this Messiah was supposed to be born. And they told him about that Old Testament prophecy, that he would be in Bethlehem. So Herod sent them to find this Jesus and instructed them to come back and tell them where he could be so that he could go worship him himself. Whereas in reality, Herod had absolutely no desire to worship or to humble himself. Instead, all he wanted was to preserve his own way of life. In fact, what we find out in the very next passage of Scripture, right after this story, is that immediately after, Herod orders all children, all male children under the age of two or under in the Bethlehem area to be killed. Because he wanted to preserve his own way of life. So we, we see two different kinds of seeking here. We see the Magi who were searching for answers, something greater than themselves. They were aware that, that there was an adventure waiting for them, that, that, that they saw something and said, I, I, there's a hunger inside of me to, to answer the questions that are deeply found in my life. And they went at great cost and great expense. It took them about a month on foot, maybe if they were on camels or on another animal, perhaps it took them only a couple of weeks. But the amount of money that it took, the places to stay and the food and the lodging and travel arrangements took expense for them to go out of their way to seek after this one that could provide answers for them. But on the flip side, we see Herod, who was seeking really only to protect what he had, his power, his lifestyle. He refused to see anything greater than himself. He even called together the theological leaders and said, where is the Messiah to be born? He was a Jewish man who was expecting the Messiah. The Messiah was the savior of all Israel's people. He was aware of that and yet tried to stamp him out. So we see two different, very different types of seeking. One is to seek the answers and something greater than ourselves and the other is to seek something in order to preserve our own way of thinking and our own lifestyle. And I think for us, it is very similar. It's the same. When we seek God, we can do one of two things. We can either seek to find the answers to the questions that we face in life, right? Sometimes for us to seek after God is to say, God, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I don't know how I'm going to live, how I'm going to fix this problem. I don't know how to be the person that I feel like I should be. I don't know how to live up to the dreams that I feel like are inside of me. And whether or not they, they believe, there may be people in the room right now today who say, I don't know what I think about God. I don't know what I think about Jesus, but I came here because I'm looking for some kind of an answer, something greater than myself. And that's one way that we can see in intentionally pursuing the one who has those answers. Or, or maybe there's someone in the room today who's seeking out information. And they're satisfying, trying to satisfy this internal hunger, but ultimately with the desire just to fit it into their own worldview and to preserve their own way of thinking. They're seeking after information. They're seeking after knowledge. And they're two very different things. I think I have met people who've come to our church, and and we want this to be a place of exploration. It's one of our main concepts or values here is is exploring faith. We recognize that people are in all different walks of life and all different places, and they have lots of questions. They don't know exactly what they think about God or, or about Jesus, or maybe sometimes I say things about this man named Jesus, and they think... I don't really know if I believe that or if I agree with that. And I, wanted, I want this to be a place. We believe God created this place to be a, a house of where people can come and say, I just want to know who this God is. I feel like there's more, and I'm seeking after that. But there are people who are not here for that reason. There, sometimes, I'm saying, I'm not, I am not new if there's anybody particularly in the room, but I say sometimes people come here or go to any church or, or look up on the Internet, anything about God or about Jesus, just so they can gather information and it doesn't change who they are or how they live, but instead they just assimilate it so that it, they, can, they can sort of wrap it around and keep doing what, exactly what they want to do. You understand the difference between the two? One is seeking something greater than myself that can help me be the person that I feel like I should be. The other is saying, I'm good enough where I am. I don't really need a savior, but I want to know this information so that I can just sort of, I can wrap it into a nice bow. And I think this is where many people struggle with Jesus, they they're face to face with this man. I mean, even Gandhi said, "I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians." Right? Like because there's oftentimes a, a a dissonance that we see between what Jesus said. People love looking at Jesus. They love saying, "Oh, he loved people. He gave of himself. He was so generous. He was friendly. He had kids sitting on his lap. He was like Santa Claus." I mean, it was like people love the picture of Jesus, but they oftentimes. Don't want to assimilate the things that he says, like take up your cross and follow me daily. He talks about laying your life down for other people. When it comes to implementing the things that Jesus says to become a follower, a disciple of him, many people say, I like Jesus and I'll take the pieces and I'll apply it to my life, the things that that help me in what I want to be. But Jesus said this concept of seeking in Matthew 7, 7. He says, ask, very famous verse here, ask and it will be given to you. And he says, what? Seek and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. See, what Jesus offers, people want, but many people are not willing to seek it. Many people are not willing to search for it to intentionally get it. Jesus was telling him, everything you want, every answer to every question, every problem that you have in life, I can help you with it. I can be there for you. I can make you and help you become the person that God wants you to be, the person that I created you to be. But you have to come and find me. And many people struggle with that idea. They struggle with that idea of laying down themselves like Herod did. Herod wanted to find the Messiah Not so that he could learn from him and become who he was meant to be, but instead so that he could could assimilate what he knew about Jesus into keeping his life exactly the way that it was. Herod was not willing to give up anything. He was not willing to give any cost for anything. He was only willing to go as far as knowing this Jesus just so he could stay the same. The Magi were hungry for God and what God was offering to them. Now, we don't know... You know, that they went back home and that they all of a sudden started preaching the gospel message to the people in Persia. We don't know any of that. In fact, they may have just gone back and they may have said, we found the one that we were searching for and they went through their own normal patterns of life again. We don't know. But the, the point of this is, is that they at least did something with the questions that they had. Whereas Herod only wanted the end result for himself and wouldn't pursue anything that would cost him anything or require him to change his lifestyle. Jesus offers the answers to the questions that we face, and he said that he'll actually reward us if we earnestly seek him. In fact, Hebrews eleven six 6, on the screen here, it says that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Last week, we talked about a reward for those who wait patiently for God, and now that we see that we're also rewarded when we sincerely and intentionally seek him, and so this is the big idea of today, of the message. If you take one thing with you today, One idea from this message, if you're writing it down, I encourage you to take notes, write this down in your program. Here's the big idea of the day. It is this. This search is only worth it if we allow the answers to transform us. The search is only worth it if we allow the answers to transform us. Last week, we talked about how the wait is only worth it if we're waiting for the right thing. And in this case, it's a similar concept that the search, the thing that we're looking for is truly only worth the energy. It's only worth the expenditure that we put out if we are allowing the answers to transform us. Because similarly, what we talked about in the Christmas season, if I go and I find that gift that I love and I want it, it ultimately doesn't satisfy me and I have to search for something else. Next year, I find myself going to the same store looking for the same thing. The same thing is true in our faith. If I'm searching for something, it's only truly worth it if I allow the thing that I find to transform me. We can look at Jesus. We can say, wow, you know, he had great things to say. You know, he had wonderful things to say, and, and he, he can change people's lives, and he did miracles. But if I don't allow his words to get inside of my heart, to get inside of my soul, to get inside of my behaviors, and to influence the way that I behave, the way that I treat people, the way that I treat my wife or my kids or my coworkers, the decisions that I make with my finances, all of the principles that Jesus taught if I don't allow those things to get inside of me and to transform me, then what is the point of searching in the first place? Why do I come to church if all I'm going to do is live my life exactly the same way as I did when I walked in the door? And I'm not trying to like, discourage anybody or anything, because you come here, come here, and listen, and hear, and allow the patience and the time. I'm not saying move beyond what you can do. But what I am saying is that in all of Scripture, I have seen that God refuses to let people stay the same. He will always act as a catalyst in your life, one way or the other. When you hear his word... Somehow, whether it's preached or you read scripture or a friend or a coworker says something that is God delivered through scripture or whatever, when that happens, you have a choice to make. You can either say, I will either move closer to God or I'm going to grab myself tighter, which ultimately pushes me away. Those are the choices that we have. We cannot stay the same. We never can. We must always make a choice. And in this case... In this Advent season, this concept of searching and seeking out a Savior, this is not just for Christmas. This is all year round. Jesus invites us into seeking. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek me, and you will find me. Knock, and the door will be open." These are verbs. These are intentional actions. So the Advent-driven life that we are talking about this month not only includes waiting, but it also diligently and intentionally seeking God. It requires time. It requires effort. It requires energy. The answers that we are all searching for are available to us. I'm not saying that when you find Jesus and you get into a relationship and you have a connection with your creator again, that all of a sudden you're going to become like a guru and have all the wisdom in the world but, and have the answers to every problem. But what, it, what he does promise is that when we diligently and earnestly seek him, We spend time with our efforts and our behaviors trying to know more about who he is and learning about it and then allowing it to transform us. What he promises is that he will give us the pieces that we need for the times that we need it. And we will begin to understand. And it becomes less about what should I do right now as it is, God, what are you doing in my life? What purpose have you created me for? How can I find the ultimate ultimate belonging that you have created me for? So seeking after God also offers the reward of discovering a better way of life, a better way to live and belonging more than we could ever find on our own. And I had just a couple of thoughts about how we could do this as we close up today. Some, some practical ways that we can seek God in our life, because I think this is important. I think, I think I've sort of hammered it and said, here's what we need to do. But some of you may be saying, I just I don't know how to get there. Like, what can I specifically do to seek God. Well, here's some thoughts that I came up with. One was his words. His words written down in Scripture. Reading the Bible is really about discovering what God is like. When we read the Bible, a lot of times people say, I have a hard time identifying with the characters because these, a lot of people were 2,000 or more years ago and they lived and their culture is so different. But when we read Scripture, try to read it from a perspective of what can I learn about who God is? The way that he interacts with people is consistent throughout all of Scripture. When you want to see what Jesus was like, read his words and see how he treated people. See what he said about people. See what the Bible says about God. When we read his words, we seek God. We learn about who he is and what he is like. We can seek God through prayer. Prayer is just conversation with God. It's a a conversation and listening. We actually have a a dream team huddle before service where those who are part of our our dream team, we kind of come together with a uh, a devotional. And this morning, my wife, Heather, taught about prayer and said that it's what it is. It's just a conversation. It's telling God what you think and what you're going through and then stopping and listening and allowing, allowing his presence and his spirit to speak to you. Prayer is how we seek through God. Another way is through Relationships. Relationships are like living examples of God's transformation. We have our life groups. You know, every, every year we have our, the semesters of life groups. And we, we come here and we try to create a space for people to, to have relationships with each other. We go out to lunch with each other. We have that Monday night football thing I was telling you about. All sorts of ways for us to rub shoulders with people whose lives have been transformed by God. And when we engage in those relationships, we see living examples of what it's like. And you say, wow, he did that for that person? I think he could do it for me too. We seek God in relationships. We seek him through learning. When we come to church and we hear the teaching of God's principles, we're learning and we're seeking to understand the connection that we have with our creator. We do it through worship and connecting to God's heart. And when Aaron leads us every Sunday, that's why he says, this is not just about the words. He says, when you're singing them, look at the lyrics on the screen and sing them from your heart. We're connecting, we're seeking a connection with our creator, with God. We can seek God through worship and finally through serving through serving is by practicing God's priorities. We allow God, as we know him, as we seek out him and we hear what he's like and we train, begin to live in the way that he wants for us, we begin to now replicate that as we serve at church, as we serve people in our families. When I'm doing the dishes at home, I'm serving God as I'm serving my wife. As I take my kids to school, when I go to their, their, their practices for sports and, and things like when I spend time with them, when I'm walking down the street and I help somebody, when I pick up someone from the bus stop, and take them back or whatever. What I'm doing is I'm serving people, but I'm seeking God because I'm learning about who he is and beginning to live that out in my life. You see, there's such tangible ways for us. And we can live the seeking concept of Advent this Christmas season and beyond if we would just allow our hearts to be open to what Jesus might say to us. And so I encourage you today and I encourage you every day that we gather to come here with an expectant heart and with an intentional decision to seek after God who wants to provide the answers to the questions that you have and that we all have and he wants to give us the meaning and the purpose that we so desperately crave and desire if we would seek him and be intentional about seeking him would you just close your eyes and pray with me